welcome once again to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and we are shamak bang in the middle of the celebrations of St. Patrick's Day as I'm coming to you from the little studio here in Stockholm. And sure, I'm only meeting myself coming back, boys and girls. I was just at lunch there with the Irish Chamber of Commerce in Sweden, a fantastic organisation here in Stockholm where I live. Uh, getting together for the annual St. Patrick's Day lunch and listening to Ambassador Gormley and all sorts of other things. I've hope you, I hope you're in the middle of wonderful celebrations wherever you happen to be in the world. Jam-packed old podcast for you this week. There's a fascinating sporting story coming up because on the morning this drops, right, Ireland are playing England later on today uh, in a Grand Slam decider. Right, so it's in Dublin. I, I don't know. It's probably the first time this has ever happened. That Ireland can win a Grand Slam in rugby on home soil, and in honour of that fantastic, almost preposterous occasion, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be talking to a former rugby player turned American football kicker called Tig Leader about his amazing story in the game of rugby, uh, but how he moved over to the gridiron game and came so close, scored a winning field goal in a practice this match and came so close to breaking into one of the biggest American football leagues in the world before deciding, you know what I'm going to do? I've taken the road less travelled, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to train other Irish athletes to do it. I think it's a perfect starter. It's a perfect thing to listen to while you're taking the dog for a walk and trying to clear the head from the few points on St. Patrick's Day to get you in the mood for Ireland against England. And you know what? If you're only coming to this on the Sunday, the 19th, or Monday, the 20th, that's grand too, because you'll enjoy that conversation as well. It's very little to do with the England match, but it's a great sporting story. Before we do that, lads, I have a message for you from Uchtaran Neheran, uh, Michael D. Higgins. Now, little bit of behind the scenes here. Again, we've no qualms about telling you how the sausage is made here on the Global Gale podcast. For the second time, I asked Michael D if he'd come on the podcast and, and address the great Irish diaspora, the 70 million people around the world for whom I make this podcast every week. And he said no for the second time. I can understand that. He's a busy man. There's a lot of grass to cut above in the Phoenix Park. Knows a little bit of a giant, lads. Not going to lie, not going to lie. But what the staff of our, our great president said was, Look, we'll share with you the audio message that he is going to send out on St. Patrick's Day or just before St. Patrick's Day to the Irish people around the world. Now, it's not everybody who bumps into those things unless you're on the president's website or on the social media, that kind of thing. You might see some of the videos that are being sent around by the Irish government. So I have agreed more than happily to include it here. Now, I will ask the question of why the president is going on Blind Boys podcast, not this one. I know Blind Boys more famous, lads. I know even with the bag over his head, he's more handsome than I am. That's fine, right? But at some point in the future, I would hope that Michael D or his successor will take the opportunity to speak to the wonderful listeners of the Global Gale podcast and come and do the thing on here as well. Because, as I say, we do make it in all seriousness for the Irish community around the world. And it's something that's uh, of great interest to us all right now. So here you go. This is the 2023 message from Uchtanon Neheren on St. Patrick's Day or to celebrate St. Patrick's Day for the Irish people around the world. Maruktar may I send my warmest greetings and good wishes to our Irish family and friends of Ireland across the world on this day of celebration of our national patron St. Patrick. Whether we are Irish by birth or Irish by choice, we are all part of a rich and vibrant global community that is bound together by a shared love of life 
a shared love of our national heritage, language and culture. Today, as we gather to celebrate that spiritual culture and legacy that speaks so deeply to us of a common but complex past, we can draw a shared strength from recalling the inspirational teachings from the life of St. Patrick, our national patron saint. In these times of multiple interacting crises, human and natural, it is vital that we recognise the need for a solidarity that binds us together as humans and acknowledge the responsibility we share for our vulnerable planet and for all those who dwell on it. For example, the plight of the people in Turkey and Syria will be in our thoughts as they work to rebuild in the wake of last month's devastating earthquakes. Such horrific events remind us all of our utter vulnerability and of the shared humanitarian response required. We live in a time of increasing conflicts and a departure from the principles of international and humanitarian law, so carefully crafted over decades as alternatives to war. Over a year on from the invasion of the people of Ukraine and all those ensnared in the more than 20 armed conflicts around the world must remain foremost in our minds. It is heartening to see the welcome that so many households and schools have extended here in Ireland and elsewhere. Heartening to hear of all those who continue to provide sanctuary to the tens of thousands of displaced Ukrainian citizens who have fled conflict in their homeland. Schools in every part of the country have opened their arms to new pupils and shown a deep commitment of respect and solidarity. Thank you. As we honour our patron Saint Nath Podrick, how appropriate it is that we recall the foundational story upon which our National Day is based. That story of the slavery of his time as a young man. Saint Patrick emerged from slavery, having been trafficked across the Irish Sea as a young man. After six years, he escaped, returning to his family and his studies in Britain. Yet, in a remarkable display of resilience and generosity, he would later return to Ireland as a missionary. There are many powerful echoes from Patrick's life that resonate with our contemporary circumstances, ones that have brought new forms of slavery into being, where racism is increasing rather than decreasing in so many parts of the world, where a poisonous xenophobia, new and recalled, has taken hold in so many places. It is in these spaces where fear is being sold. The story of Patrick's transformation that would lead to his becoming an emblem of the country he adopted as his own stands in counterpoint and is so important. In his protest against the war crimes of King Corotikos and his men, Patrick, the former slave, gave both voice and his life to spearheading an awareness of the consequences of slavery. The story of his life as a migrant, we must never forget, is a reminder of the resilience and necessary courage of migrants, a reminder, too, of the contributions that they have made and continue to make to the countries they call home. The act of migration constitutes a story defined by an extraordinary will and an unyielding human desire to envision and create a better world, even in the face of sometimes considerable adversity. 
Today, as we recall the life of our patron saint, we can invoke his spirit in acknowledging our role as global citizens, opening our minds and hearts to our universal human family in all its complexity, circumstances and vulnerability. It is by showing empathy, compassion and solidarity such as by helping those fleeing distress, by offering our hearts and doors to those in need and giving people an opportunity to build a better life for themselves and their families, that we demonstrate our commitment to bringing into being values which have the power to transcend borders. Basic human morality suggests that we must think in terms of the common good if we are to invoke or follow the path of St. Patrick, recognising that we bear a duty to stand in solidarity with all those across the globe who are vulnerable and in need, and to do everything in our power to create an inclusive, just world, where all humans, in all their diversity and circumstances, are treated with dignity, respect and justice. While St. Patrick's story encourages us to reflect on the significance of migration running through our history as a constant feature of the Irish experience, we are required to respond to the ongoing brutal reality of human trafficking and forced migration as a constant feature of human experience. It is by doing that that we can most fully embrace Patrick's legacy and our own place and exercise our responsibilities in today's world. There are so many areas where we cannot continue to fail on such basic issues as global hunger and poverty. For example, in the Horn of Africa, the harsh reality of hunger steals the future, the potential, the dignity of millions of our brothers and sisters threatened with famine. How shameful it is, too, that 64 countries in the developing world were forced, while struggling with the COVID pandemic, to spend more on debt repayments than on funding public health. During my recent visit to Senegal, at which I addressed the Africa Food Summit, I emphasised that there is an urgent need to tackle not only poverty and hunger in Africa, but to offer proper security on the basic necessities of life, delivering universal basic services such as education and healthcare, thus helping to create a lasting, sustainable future built on security in its most inclusive sense. We have a moral and ethical responsibility to support our global family in dire need, to help with sustainable solutions, to ending all famines, to provide a decisive response to climate change. St. Patrick's message was, at its core, one of respect for nature, for its spirituality reflected in its seasonal renewal. Our planet is scarred by the consequences of human actions, actions often sourced in greed. Actions that have had a direct bearing on our changing climate, constituting, as it does now, one of the greatest challenges of our time, reflected in extreme weather events, widespread displacement and forced migration across our world, and the loss of fertile land. It is such a tragic injustice that those nations suffering the greatest human and economic impact of climate change are those who were least responsible for the emissions that threaten their very existence. The demand for collective action addressing our shared Earth's climate emergency has never been greater. We all must now take responsibility 
for our role in the climate crisis and play our part in decarbonising our economy and society so that we may inhabit a sustainable world, one that preserves the planet for future generations and all those who inhabit it. On this day, let us pledge to work together, cooperating, so that we may confront the contemporary challenges facing our world, espousing some of the most essential values, such as kindness and compassion, embodied as they are in the story of St. Patrick. Rather than list the points of darkness that challenge us in our contemporary circumstances, let us instead be guided by the points of light, Let us envision how our lives could be without war, famine, hunger and greed in a world that eschews the poisonous ideals of imperialism and embraces the decent instincts of humanity that such as St. Patrick embodied. As we commemorate St. Patrick's legacy, guide and patron, whose life embodied the values of a shared, generous sense of humanity, Let us do so by mustering the courage to recover the best instincts of our humanity. Have the mettle to face those who resist such instincts. Reaffirm and strengthen our commitment to advocating the principles that informed Patrick's life. Calling us, as they do, to embrace our role as global citizens. Extending a hand of support to all those in need with whom we share this planet. Respond with hospitality and kindness to those fleeing the ravages of hunger conflict and climate change, thus bringing into reality our taking responsibility to work with fellow citizens for a more just and inclusive world. I wish you all a most enjoyable and peaceful St. Patrick's Day. There you go. That was the big man. Or the very little man who now is the big man at this stage, uh, Michael D. Higgins, with his address to the Irish diaspora on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, I have to say I like that man a lot but he's Jesus he's going to annoy an awful lot of people with that between being generous and climate change and all that kind of things a whole lot of people don't like that lads but sure it is what it is and I said I would bring it to you and there you go as I mentioned big rugby game coming up today depending on when this when you're listening to this uh, so let's get into the discussion now with this lad um, this is a chap that I was introduced to by Shane Monaghan Shane has a great podcast platform called Lemur and I'm going to use Lemur to bring you a few St. Patrick's Day greetings on on the next episode of the podcast it's uh, basically like I suppose you call it Instagram for voice notes right so you go on to Lemur and you record what's called a cast which is like a tweet on Twitter and um you basically put out the audio note out there and it starts a discussion with people and they leave, au- leave audio responses. So I put the word out on Lemur that I wanted to have a chat with you boys and girls. So go on to Lemur and see if you can find me and just send me a little voice note there on Lemur and tell me where you are in the world and how you are celebrating St. Patrick's Day and that kind of thing. And I shall throw them in at the start of the next episode of the podcast, which is out next week. And lads, I'll tell you something for nothing, right? The interview is already recorded with a chap called Ronan Sheehan from Cork and it's an absolute banger, as is this one with Ty Glee. Right, so do not miss these next two episodes of the Global Gale. This is what I call public service podcasting, right? Because let's face it, RTE aren't in any hurry to make any uh, shows for us, those of us, the 70 million Irish living abroad. But I'll do it and I'll do it every week. If you can support me, please do. Patreon.com forward slash arrow man in Stockholm. Uh, you can contribute a five or a month there and that will keep the lights on and keep these things coming to you and keep these stories coming to you. Uh, so let's get on with it. Here is Ty Leader talking to you 
about uh, leader kicking and how he got into rugby and American football and now how he's going to coach the next generation so that the Fighting Irish will indeed take over the gridiron game in due course. Like, how old were you when you figured, right, I actually might have a shot at this as a professional sportsman, as a rugby player? Uh, young, 14 maybe, 13, 14, when it first kind of came on the horizon because it was hurling, Gaelic, rugby were the, were the sports and I actually preferred hurling. I came from a big hurling parish in Galway. And I think, yeah, the, the kind of professional economic system started at 14, 15 and you know, there's maybe a hundred lads try try out, and then thirty get picked or twenty get picked, and out of that twenty, five of us were kind of brought aside separately again within that to do a different, say, training re- regime. So I think that, that was my first time my eyes were opened up to like what what a professional sport even was, because up to that point I didn't have it, didn't have a clue. Mm. Was it was that a bit of an eye opener for you? Because all of a sudden it went from being a game, something you did with your mates, something you did on a Saturday, and now all of a sudden this started to look like a bit of a career. Yeah, it, w- it was. Um, and in hindsight, I'd say to people looking back, it was probably too much too soon at that age to because I stopped hurling, I stopped Gaelic, for example, I had to stop those sports because you just you kind of you know you're funneled into this kind of narrow enough um system. I loved it at the time. Now, don't get me wrong; I thought it was amazing that during the summer holidays and all my friends would be going off, getting a summer job or whatever it might be. Monday to Friday, I was just heading off to into the sports ground, which is the Connacht's Rugby's uh, facility. Um, heading in there training from nine in the morning till four in the evening. Um, so I I loved it. Um, but it was a uh, yeah. So looking back at that age, you you missed out on a load because you were training. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was different. Uh, I actually, funnily enough, I don't think they've taken lads in that young that seriously since. And obviously, I'm talking fifteen years ago. Um, because mm-hmm. it was it, it's a lot to. You, you miss out you miss out on a load again at the time probably didn't fully understand or appreciate that but just as you get older um you know i'm starting to realize it now i'm 31 uh, as of two days ago and i've i only started my first real job outside of sports uh three weeks ago and my friends mm-hmm. were just literally i was at a stag olympic at the weekend and they were saying sure we started when we were 15 16 and i was oh, yeah fair but I, I was also doing rugby rugby is a real job but you know what i mean it's it's a uh, it's different mm-hmm. um so yeah that's kind of the crack there. Well, it's very hard to explain to lads on a stag when you've been paid for playing a game for the last 15 years. And, oh, yeah, lads, no, it's actually like the job you do. And they go, no, no, it's not at all, you know? Um, (laughs) Was it a very competitive environment, even as a young man there? Because you hear about this, it's almost like sort of a hothouse coming up and it's the survival of the fittest and you want to get into the national team and you want to get a professional contract at that. that. Did that pass you by or were you aware of that once you got into that environment? I actually didn't I didn't it didn't feel as competitive to me as maybe as it probably was but I didn't even ha- I didn't even consider it like that because again you were like the top five out of the entire province that you're in and everything's done for you and you, you're in so you just kind of keep progressing up the ladder and you keep taking the next step and it's really mapped out in your hand you know you almost pulled up to the next step so and yeah, I never, I never actually, yeah, I've never even thought of that. I, I, I never kind of felt like, oh, my head's on the chopping block, or someone's kind of coming for me. Which you do when you get into, when you get a little bit older, because you know now it's your, it's actually your job. You're not going to school on Monday, or like you know, it's not just a summer holiday. 
um, or we get into later, I played a different sport and that was really competitive. Um, so I guess my perspective based off what I did later in life, no, I, I didn't, I didn't see it that way. I definitely still had the, the youth and enthusiasm and, and the fun side of the sport, which probably left me when I got to like 20, 21 in rugby. Uh, it would, you know, I, so at that age, I, I guess that age, I was still, it was still quite fun. As I said, looking back, it was quite a lot quite early, but at the time I, I loved it. So, yeah, I guess the joy element did. I didn't see it that way. Uh, so yeah, it's, it, I never thought about it like that. When you were 16, 17, 18, what kind of a player were you on the field? Were you a flair player? Were you a general? You played a fly half, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I was just, I, like, I, good pass, a good kicker. And that's about it. Hated tackling. Um, I was a bit <laughs> of a, yeah, I have no problem, no problem saying that. So yeah, like the, more of a general kind of, barking and telling the people where to go and what to do um versus versus the lad who's going to make a big line break or do this kind of sexy thing that nah, that wasn't me just do, doing the kind of basics well and kicking was my kind of <clears throat> i coach a lot and we talk a lot about your super skills like well, you know you, you want to make your deficiency you want to work on them but whatever your, your super skill is make that bloody one of my coaches i met a few years ago was like it's your super skills why you're getting paid or you're getting picked whatever it is so make that like you know, make make that so good. You, the coaches have to pick you, not not the fact you're not a great tackler. Okay, we want to make you a bit better tackler, but they know they can count you to the kick. So, um, yeah, that was kind of my game. I was never, 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 uh, never like a high level athlete. I was fine. I was obviously good enough to be there, but it was the the kicking element kind of that was was my uh, super skill in that. And I love that as well. So I made it easy to you know kind of be a bit obsessive around it and train quite hard. And it's kind of a it's a quite an isolating thing even. The, the rugby stuff, you, you know, you're off on your own a lot of the time, tra- or you do an extra training by yourself, or when, you know, whenever training finishes, you usually stay for an extra 20 or 30 minutes kicking, or the day before a game and people are rest and you're out kicking, so but I loved it, so it was, it was kind of an easy thing to do, so yeah, that was that's kind of how I'd quickly so I wasn't a very good player, I was a good kicker, so I think is what I'm saying <laughs> I heard a great story about Leo Messi when he came as a schoolboy to Barcelona. You know, again, you were talking about your super skills. What's the one thing that you do better than anybody else? And then, of course, you have to work on your weaknesses. And a coach said to one of the other coaches, "Is like, you know, his right foot isn't very good." And the other coach who worked with Messi every day said, "It doesn't have to be." Have you seen his left foot? You know, <laughs> so, so yeah. uh, we may not put you in the same class as Messi there. But no, in, terms of, in, in terms of the game of rugby, tied is that enough? Right? When you can basically drop the ball in a six or when you can split the posts nine out of ten times when you step up there was that enough for you to be a professional player or did you have to add things to your game um i guess i don't want to sell myself short i was still a pretty good decent player um but it was it was definitely the reason why i was kind of kept around and got opportunity so no i guess if like i i was that was a handy handy player a lot of lads i guess were just kind of good kickers are good at a, a singular thing or you know you see a lot of guys when you're younger coming through the age they're like a terrier they're just like class attack and put their head in wherever wherever they need to go um but then like their other skills are just way off like their catch pass for example um so i guess your super skill yeah great it needs to be super but the, the i guess there is a baseline of the other ones at least need to be up to par um yeah and I, so in, in that in that realm like I like to make 10 tackles, I might miss two, but the other eight, I'm not going to smack the fella, but I'll just, you'll just soak them and get them down type thing. So, um, yeah, that's probably how I'd say it. So, yeah, at, at that level, you still, you still need to be competent in, in the uh, in the other areas. So, 
yeah, when I say I wasn't a great player, it just was, was you know, I, I was I was decent. At the time, I probably thought I was better than I was, but you only get older and hindsight, I realized that, like, I get comfortable with that as well. Like, you, you, maybe when you're in those environments, you need to be a little bit more kind of bulletproof or at least think you're bulletproof um, and give off the perception or persona that you, you feel bulletproof across the board. But, uh, yeah, that's... um. Yeah, it's good. You've asked me two or three questions already that I haven't really thought about from that angle, so it's good. I'll tell you, if you if you thought they were off the wall, the next one is going to be even further <laughs> off the wall. And there's a reason for asking for you this, my friend, right? What kind of Gaelic footballer were you? What position did you play or what did you do when you got on the ball? Uh, centre forward and midfield. Uh, or Centre forward, full forward, midfield generally. Um, I I was good. I would have played Galway underage and stuff. Um, primarily full forward now that I really hone in um what did I do I was I was I guess I was a lad that would have, I scored a lot um goal scores and stuff I was I wouldn't say I was selfish but I, that was my job to you know just to score so is that is that the answer did I is that the answer you were maybe expecting or no uh it, in a way it is yeah I was just wondering if there's going to be a big difference between who you wear as a rugby player and who you wear as a Gaelic footballer and what the transferable skills might have been and if the super skill was kicking it obviously full forward is the way to go if you can strike the ball with precision uh, yeah exactly and you you took the freeze did you take them out of the hand or off the ground I actually went off the ground which makes we seeking conversions and stuff I was off the I guess you're off the ground and then I played American football which is off the ground so yeah it's 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 all like it, it now Thinking about that, yeah, it's all pretty. Um, they lean into each other quite well, but yeah, yeah. that that would have been. Um, and most lads that you know you did say that are you know get onto professional rugby or whatever high level the kickers most of them I guess a lot of them have Gaelic football backgrounds so are quite handy. Um, mm-hmm. at that, yeah, and then and then the two feet, you know, it's quite handy having your left foot or if your right foot or having your left foot as an option, something you mm-hmm. would use in football a lot. Uh, I I do a coaching now, and I love coaching Gaelic football lads in kicking because they're um, they're just very natural. They're like they're they're very dynamic in how they move. They're not prescribed, which which I think is really. And it, they don't even know it. You know, I can see it when I see them now, but they don't even know how free they are and how they move and how the different passes they can pull out of the out of their the box of tricks. Say, um, so yeah. My old man always used to say that if you can only use one foot, you're only half a footballer. Come here to me. When you were coming up through Connacht then, you spent an awful lot of your career outside of Ireland. Was it Italy that you went to first? Yeah, I did uh, a sign for a year in Italy, but um, my shoulder decided to come out a few times. So that put an end to that. But yeah, I, I was always big on... Uh, it was really common when in, in the Irish rugby system when if you weren't... There's only four pro teams, so it's a small, small, lot of high demand, lack of not, not a whole lot of opportunity. Um, so lads used to go to the UK a lot. That was probably as, as as far as a lot of guys went. Um, ten years ago, twelve years ago. Uh, but I remember just I didn't fancy moving to Midwest England or something like that when I got a chance to to go play in Italy. So I remember going off, not speaking a word of Italian. Um, twenty two maybe, and uh, just. And I said, "Fuck it, off. I'm just going to give this a crack." And that then set me in motion. I've been gone from Ireland for the last ten years, different parts of the world, then playing and um, up to different stuff. Hmm. The shoulder injury put a stop to you in Italy, and you kind of never really got a chance to show, you know, what kind of game you had, what kind of player you could be. But it didn't sort of dampen your appetite for going abroad. And after that, you headed off. You basically headed west to America to try your look over there, didn't you? 
Uh, the the best thing about Italy was that I I grew up a lot because again I was from Galway and then I, mm-hmm. even when I was in Connacht, I was living at home, which is five seven minutes from the sports ground. So moving to Italy, and um, that was the best thing that that did. That I it forced me to grow up and just kind of realize how really sheltered I was in rugby because uh, that environment, being at home and in the, the that just you're being a Galway lad, it was it was all very familiar. Um, mm-hmm. But the Italy grew up a lot, fend for myself a little bit, obviously not speaking the language, um, had its challenges. But then, yeah, it definitely gave me the thing that it showed me that the perspective of there's a lot more out there than Galway. There's a lot more to go and see. So when I got the chance then, I got the shoulder reconstructed and I got the chance to move to to study because I, I hadn't studied when I was playing rugby because I was just like, sure, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. I didn't, mm-hmm. again, perspective, you don't, you don't have that at that point. 18, 19, 20, when you're, I should have been in college. Um, and then I remember moving to Missouri in the US to study, really random. But I remember thinking, literally, when I got there, it's like, geez, out of my comfort zone. But I'm thinking, like, well, look, at least they speak English here. So, like, surely if I, I, I can make this work. And uh, mm-hmm. ended up spending six, seven years in the US and uh, really enjoyed it. I cost mm-hmm. from study to playing to social. It was, it was, uh, it was good. Mm-hmm. You were on a college scholarship there playing rugby in Missouri, weren't you? It's it's a strange one. So I was honest. I was was worried as academic because in rugby in the US isn't isn't major. So a lot of the colleges don't have funding for full scholarships. So mine was worded as academic, so they could get me pretty much a full scholarship. Um, then I get there, I play one game, and we play against a team called Dartmouth. It's a big Ivy League school, you know, high level, you know, academic lads, really wealthy elite kind of fellas. Mm-hmm. Um, and we beat them by like a hundred and something points, like hammered them, and they thought they were good because you know, the, you know, the, yeah, they thought they were good, hammered them, and uh, literally, whatever, next two or three days, there's a big shit show in, within the governing body because I was uh, I was flagged. They were like, "Who's this red-haired fella?" Because I just kicking penalties at that level. Obviously, I was better than these eighteen-year-old American guys, so I stuck out, and then. Yes. So then I ended up getting flagged within the system and I ended up never playing a game of rugby again for that college because they said I was ineligible to play college sports because of my background in, in rugby in Ireland and Italy. Mm. Um, so that was a bit of a spanner in the works. But because of my scholarship was worded as academic, I didn't lose my scholarship. So then I ended up, I got to stay there for the next three years, started coaching, became a rugby agent. Uh, just just a load of different stuff because I had kind of freedom just to do what I wanted. So it actually turned out to be a bit of a blessing in disguise because I, I love I love coaching. I wouldn't have known it if I was playing and rugby agency stuff. I was that was a random experience that I got to do. So uh, yeah, so I, I played one game from my college. So it was probably the worst scholarship they ever gave out, basically. Well, it's certainly the most expensive, but I mean, you probably scored yeah, hundred yeah. points in that game, so the average wasn't too bad, you know. Did, did that when you look back now? You you talked about being thirty one there, looking back, and hindsight being twenty twenty vision. At the same time as you were able to get that education and those experiences, you weren't able to play the game that you had sort of grown up playing, you know. And then you were going more and more down the road, less travelled for a high profile, very talented rugby player. Do you look back now and think, Jesus, maybe I should have gone to Sale or or Gloucester or somewhere like that and play there instead? No, because I hated rugby when I left Connacht before going to Italy. I guess we kind of jumped past that. I I the last year and a bit. I was there, I was injured, my, well, my shoulder had already come out. The operation I ended up getting in Italy, that was nine months after the initial dislocation. Um, maybe even more, actually. 
actually more. Um, so my last year or so in, in Connacht, I hated it. I did not I got a bad ankle injury as well. I wasn't myself. Little things that I you do second nature, I couldn't do second nature between. I was trying to play to keep my contract, but I didn't really want to do that. Um, so I was I wasn't happy. It wasn't myself. I didn't enjoy it. The coaches knew it themselves, especially the ones that knew me from the age of fifteen. They were like, I remember they just your mojo. They're like, you've lost your mojo. What's up? And um, so I I, re- I really didn't like. I remember once or twice before training, uh, like you know a pitch session at ten o'clock, for example. I remember once or twice I literally just didn't go out. I just like you know there's thirty five guys there. I wasn't a you know big first team player. I was one of the young up and coming guys. I remember just just staying in the change rooms. I'm like I'm not, no no one knew that. I just started they hide in the toilets even like I hated it that much. Like my dream, became, I wouldn't say a nightmare. That's probably a bit strong, but I I didn't like it. Um, so. No, and I tried Italy because uh, that was trying to kind of reignite my love for the game potentially by going to a total new environment. I guess that was part of it. And going to Italy, which didn't work out because the shoulder was obviously used to that point. So, no, I, I love the freedom. I love the I love the freedom of those two, two, three years where I wasn't playing serious professional rugby. I helped out, played a little bit locally, uh, socially, and... We ended up going on to win the national championship in America, but like that was points on a Thursday, points after the game Saturday. That was just like proper good fun, and I, I ended up enjoying rugby again. And then I went back playing thereafter. But no, that that little periods were that you're referring to, not nah, felt free, and uh, it was it was it, I didn't I didn't miss the game. I didn't miss mm. the game at all. Uh, when you're playing at that level, right, when you go to the collegiate level in the States and indeed when you went on to go back playing the game in San Diego and places like that, did you feel that after playing with Connacht, who, you know, still a professional team, right, you're talking about one of the top, you know, one of the very few established teams in Europe. Did the game seem very slow to you in America? Did it seem very easy to you having had the background that you had in the game? It did when I was playing the the social rugby Um the, the the amateur club rugby, yeah, that did. Uh, but then when I went out to San Diego, that was then back, that was my first jump back into professional rugby. And the the league was made up of maybe half Americans, half foreigners, and all the foreigners would have played professionally, um, in New Zealand, Ireland, wherever. So that 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 was a decent level of rugby. So it wasn't as quick, but it was it was. It was quick enough that I, I can't say I felt comfortable at any stage. Like that, that this is no, it wasn't. It was definitely wasn't easy by any means. Um, and like the few All Blacks are out there and stuff. So now that was the kind of guys in the back end of the career or Bastero, the guy that plays in France. Um, so there was good level of player there, but the the club the club rugby, yeah, that that felt slow. But I mean, I was going from playing professional to Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three amateur rugby in America. So I was playing against guys who started playing rugby some guys probably use the first ever game so mm. you know like fair enough I guess in that scenario but that was the best that was so much fun um, so much fun and that's one thing that I've said to lads that like who have been in a similar situation to myself and have always been in the professional rugby system and like quite a, quite a few guys that are still doing it and you know it does become a job well for not everyone but a lot of guys it does become more of a job where the, the enjoyment factor does lessen um, and it's just kind of they never get to experience that side of the game the, the the pure social and just great great craft like just like so yeah I look back like that being the top three my rugby memories of my lifetime was getting to play Division Three American Club rugby to travel around the U S where you know it wasn't that physical so my body was all right and just a lot of fun so uh, 
yeah, that was kind of that say year before I went back into full time in yeah San Diego, which was again it was good crack, but it was obviously a lot more serious than uh, pints three or four times a week. <laughs> Despite the re- reputation that Ruby would have would have had certainly when I was growing up, it sort of cleaned up yeah. its accents then. Um, obviously over in America, and the reason we sort of came to have this conversation is because you discovered that you know your aptitude for kicking and for coaching kicking that became something that it has enormous value in North America in terms of the Canadian Football League and not least the National Football League. How did you discover that you could kick the pigskin as they call it in America as far as and as accurately as you could and who was it that said to you oh you might actually want to consider this as a, a different career yeah it was when I was in the US it, it had been t- said to me multiple times playing rugby games people would be like oh you should try American football <clears throat> but never you, know, you just nod oh yeah yeah you must yeah but kind of just you know don't actually take it serious and I, I was about to get caps to play for the American national team so that was something I was like it'd be, it'd be nice to play international rugby so never never considered it. And then when COVID came along, I was coaching a rugby team in Boston. And I remember just going belting a few. Uh, one of the guys I coached was a high school coach in American football. And um, so he had a bag of balls. So I just said, can I, can I just, just for the crack, can I just go give him a kick? Literally, literally killing time. And um, turned out it was half decent at that. And I remember I was banging field goals with this guy. And it, in America, they always have the running track going around the high school pitch. And, uh, you know, as I was doing that, people were kind of stopping and coming over and asking me, oh, where'd you go to college? Or are you trying to be with the Pats or like, what's the Patriots or like, who do you play for? And we're being like, I started kicking 15 minutes ago. Um, and <laughs> the, 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 yeah, but then with their reactions and stuff, I was like, oh, maybe, maybe this is decent or, or good. But I also thought maybe they're comparing me to a high school kicker. Like they've never seen a real professional kicker, say. But I remember going home, Googling it. And then I was like, oh, shit, maybe my stats, my distances are actually comparable. Um, so I went to see a kicking coach, drove three hours down to Connecticut, Connecticut, met a kicking coach, kicked three balls for him, literally three balls. And then he just said to me, he's like, you need to go to see John. And obviously I was like, who's John? And then it turned out John is a guy, his name, John Carney. He's the fifth top point scorer of all time. Uh, played in the NFL for like 20 something, 20 something years. Like he's ridiculous. Like, Fifth top points score of all time in the NFL, so that tells you something. And uh, so John, John trains free agent and professional kickers in San Diego. Within a week, I was just I remember going to my girlfriend at the time, and say, "Hey, I'm thinking we're just going to go to San Diego and just do this and see, see what the crack is. Like, like is it, is there something there? Uh, at bare minimum, I'll be I'll become a better rugby kicker. That was my logic. Um, so I'm just packing my bags, heading out there. My very first session. The lad that was punting in front of me, we're in a big line, he won at a time. The guy that was punting in front of me had won a Super Bowl with Seattle like two or three years earlier. And I was just kind of like, oh, Jesus, like, what, what am I doing? Like, what's the, why am I, you know, when I, I didn't know who he was because I knew, I knew no one. But I remember when I got, when I got told these things, I was like, oh, wow, like, okay, um, this is different. And then anyway, at the end of the week, I sat John down and just said, listen, just shoot me straight as they say in the US. Um, is, uh, is this a rid- ridiculous pipe dream or do you think there's something there in terms of a professional career in American football and then he just said so I said if it's no that's fine I, I, I just re-signed to play rugby actually so and I was captain of that team and I just re-signed a two-year deal and uh, I said just that's my alternative um, and then he just said if I was in I was 28 at the time and he said look if I was in your shoes I would be really excited to try and do this because I've seen you kick multiple balls that stack up side by side to current NFL kickers. 
Um, so do with that as you please. And then I remember then just being like, oh, okay. And kind of flying home to Boston and just being a decision to make. A, I just signed a contract. So I felt, you know, what's going to happen there. But the overriding feeling was that if I don't try, I'll regret this the rest of my life, having just heard this from an, you know, an NFL legend. Um, so then I had an awkward phone call to my team to say, listen, uh, about that contract we signed a couple of weeks ago, I'm I'm going to play American football. And they were just like, what, what are you talking about, American football? But <laughs> it was just random, as you can imagine. But uh, yeah, did, did that and then packed my bags and moved up to San Diego and trained there for three months to, to, to learn the sport. And uh, yeah, re, re, ran, a random one telling my family and friends, they were all like, what are you talking like, What are you doing? Like, that's ridiculous. But uh, glad I did it. Um, but it was definitely by the hardest, wasn't the hardest decision to make because I knew my hearts of hearts that I, I I had to try it. I was like, oh, I couldn't live with the regrets of not trying. But once I got into it, it was much harder. And American football is unreal in terms of how traditional and like you, you play in high school, you play in college, you're assessed in college, you get your stats, you get your game tape, you then go play pro. You don't play rugby and then become 28, 29 and say, oh, I, I want to try and like bypass all of that and jump into the pro system. So that was that was harder than I expected. And I got I, I learned to get comfortable with being told to F off or good luck or no thank you or like, you know, from different scouts and stuff. But that was all part of it as well. You know, the, the journey that was made it all the better when I kind of eventually started to get a little bit of traction. When you go back to San Diego, Tide, and as you say, you're going, okay, I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to see what I could do now. Did John help you find clubs that you could go to? Did you try out for various different levels? Did you go to NFL? What do they call them? They have open tryouts, I think, in, in a lot of sports in America. Yeah, open workouts and that kind of thing. So was your life basically with a bag of balls going to these things and going, look <laughs> what I can do, and them going, yeah, but who are you kind of thing? Well, so no, John, John, John doesn't endorse anyone directly because he has maybe, you know, there's maybe 30 guys trying to, you know, train at his facility, but we're all trying to do the same thing. Uh, and then there's maybe another 15 who are in the league, in the NFL. And then the rest of us, the kicking is the most uh, carousel of a position, like, because you don't need mm -hmm. a playbook. So anyway, um, so you know, John, John could say, oh, he was good, but John would never call a team on your behalf for anyone, but if a, a team could call him. Um, which one or two teams did. Uh, it was during COVID, so there was no open workouts. The teams, the facilities were locked down, so there was no open workouts. So you, teams, if they needed a kick, would only bring in two or three guys um, versus having like eight or nine. Um, just again, there's restrictions. And I remember like talking to the Jacksonville Jaguars, I had an agent at the time, um, and he was like kind of talking to Jacksonville. And then I got a call from a Jacksonville scout, kind of, he's like, look, your tape looks really good. Um, but I literally just moved to Jacksonville. Um, and if I bring you in and you don't kick well, not only will you get told, here's the door, but it goes like, that's a big mark against my name. And you only get two or three marks. And I didn't understand. I could in rugby, you could just bring a lot in. Like, it doesn't really matter. But the, the checks and balances aren't really, it, who cares almost, you know? Um, but it, it was very, it wasn't like that. Um, and obviously, as you can imagine, everyone say, well, where's your, like, you look great kicking a rugby ball and American football and shorts and t-shirts in San Diego, but where's your game tape? Um, so, which is, like, 
fair. I understood it, but also it's kind of like, well, I can't get game tape unless I get a chance to play a game, and I can't. There's nowhere to play a game because I didn't go to college. So like you know, it was kind of like this, just go roundabout. Um, I eventually found a league to play, and the only reason I got into that league was because I marketed myself as this like Irish leprechaun gimmick almost to get in, because uh, I I couldn't I swear to God I couldn't get in as a as a player because you know they're just like literally the the league guy was like, well, you're you're trying to compete against guys who played Division One in front of a hundred thousand people for the last four years. And you've never kicked a ball. And 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 keep in mind, these guys are all really good. It's not as if I was amazing and these guys were pretty good, but these guys are all really, really good as well. Like I wasn't kicking it five yards further. We're all kicking it around 55, 60 yards. You know, so there wasn't a huge discrepancy because there is a bit of a limit. And those guys were obviously the best. So they were kind of at the limit. So anyway, I eventually got into a league by just telling them that the half of Ireland would watch the games and uh yeah, which obviously wasn't true, but yeah, I had to try something because I, I was out of like you're desperate out of options, so you, you do what you can. Yeah, where was that team that you played for? Did they have a big Irish community? Was that the Aviators? Was that there's no, uh, yeah, the Aviators? It was, I was initially in Houston, and then like day two of training camp, I got traded to the Aviators in Indianapolis, so I experienced a trade in my like within the first 48 hours in a team, which was random surprising experience. Um, I was out down on breakfast and I literally got a call saying the aviators, I knew they were looking for a kicker. So I, I asked, I kind of like put in the ear of one of their players that I would love to go if I could, because we had two kickers on my team and the other guy had been a big time college kicker. So I knew that it was going to be hard to beat him with no training tape. Our game tape. Um, so I put in the word, and their kicker was struggling in training camp. So I put in the word that hey, if it's an option to go, I'm gone. And then thankfully things kind of happened in the background. I get and I get a call, and within two hours I was on a plane to Indianapolis. And uh, no, there was there was no Irish community. But obviously I said that I didn't. I said in terms of TV, not in terms of like physically attending games. Because it's still during COVID, so I just you know I was trying to say that you know we could. You never know. You get some Irish fans tuning in. Um, minus my mum and dad. I don't anyone else tuned in, but uh, that was it. Worked enough to get me in. It was their loss in that case. How was it getting in there for the first time? Did you get out in the field? Did you get to have it like a pop in live action that kind of thing? What did that feel like the first time you had to do it? The you know two days before the, my first ever game, I experienced my first ever live rep. You know, with eleven people around me and guys trying to block me. So I remember that I was kind of like, I remember lining up my first kick and just kind of be thinking like, oh, but here we go. And this this is in training even like, because you know, I didn't, I had never had that. Because in, yeah, in San Diego, it's just shorts and t-shirt and there's no big fella six foot six, eight yards away trying to jump and block it or no fella trying to come off the side and block it. So I remember that. And uh, so initially guys get cut every day. The, the sport, I remember I talked about, you asked earlier about, did I feel the kind of competitiveness? Um, the, here I did. Here I did because guys get guys are getting cut L- literally every second day. Someone was getting released, um. So it was that was pressure. And I had to learn to deal with that. And like, I'd never experienced that. I'd never experienced that pressure. In rugby, you miss a kick, but you can still make a good pass or do something influence the game another way. Kicker, you can't. You, you kick, and if you miss, you miss. Like everyone sees it. And kicker is the only position where instantly there's feedback that's good or it's not. Every other position, the throw could have been a bit far or the receiver. Could have maybe not ran. He should have caught her. Whatever you know, like, it's a bit of kind of gray area. Kickers don't have that. Um, so that, that was quite. I had to learn to deal with that um pressure, 
Uh, but I remember my first game just running out onto the pitch. Uh, we're playing Indianapolis Colts Stadium, so no, it was during COVID, but just like you know, big, massive indoor NFL indoor dome. And I just remember running out onto the pitch and just you know the spider camera, you know that camera that moves around the pitch, kind of yeah, yeah, up on the tables. Yeah, that one. I just remember feeling that just descend behind me, and then next thing I knew, I just looked up and the ball was in the air, just like I I disappeared for fourteen seconds. Um, just like I I don't I don't remember. I just remember that, and then seeing the ball. Thankfully, it was going over, which was which was great. <laughs> um, but I just like I you know when people talk about that kind of flow, the, a flow or a flow moment. You just kind of lose, you kind of lose yourself into it. I don't a flow as such. I just detached from it. It was it was it was uh, really strange. One of the only times I've experienced it twice, both in American football, and that was the first time where just an autopilot of sort. Even though it was my first time, but something just happened. Um, but I thankfully went over, and then it was just a pure sigh of relief. And then I ran over to the sideline, just buzzing that I just take my first kick and I scored. And then this coach just starts screaming at me. And my name was Tiger because they can't say Tiger. And uh, they're not. They just. They, they just. Or, or tiger or Irish, that's what they call me. Um, then the coaches start screaming, "Tiger, tiger, tiger!" And then I'm, and I'm just in a bit of a whirlwind. And then I forget that after you score a field goal, you have to then kick the ball off. But I'd never done that. I never had that rhythm because I never obviously done it. So I remember then trying to gather myself and looking for my kicking tee on the sideline. I wasn't prepared, and I was just kind of like, "Oh Jesus, this isn't a good look now." Um, and they're all there. The whole team was waiting for me. But anyway. I survived and I didn't get caught and it was a good first experience. So uh, that, yeah, that was uh, kind of day one. Were you nervous at all? Were you afraid? Was there any fear when you're lining up that? Or did all those years in Connacht and in Italy and in college and even in amateur rugby in America, did that prepare you in any way for what you were doing? Yeah, sorry there. Just one of my earphones kind of died on me. Uh, sorry. Do you mind just, just disconnect this really quickly? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Are you back again? Are you back again? I can't hear you there. Can you hear me? No sound there. Sorry, the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, you're, you're back yeah. now. Sorry there about that. These things died on me. No bother. Hope that doesn't add too much editing. Or... No, no. Th th there'll be a big flat line where neither of us are talking. It'll make it very, very easy to get rid of, you know? Yeah. yeah I was just asking there, when you went out to take that first field goal, that first kick in anger, so to speak, did you experience any fear or any anxiety or anything like that? Or did all those years in rugby, professional and amateur, prepare you for that moment? God, no. The rugby did not. No, I never experienced. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Um, I, I, I learned, I learned to 
so I, I I do a lot of notes before before my games, and I have a little notepad. From, this is an American football because I'd be sitting on the sideline for ninety nine percent of the game, and my big message was in just embrace vulnerability because I felt really scared and really vulnerable. But I tell myself embrace embrace vulnerability, and then kind of underneath that was like that's where that's where amazing things can happen. So I just would kind of tell myself that be like, look, Ty, if you don't go out there and feel uncomfortable and experience that fear, whatever, all you know, wasn't wasn't comfortable. Um, if you don't go experience that, you're not gonna you're not gonna get to experience any any of the positives or anything else you want to talk about. So unless you're willing to put yourself out of your comfort zone and and feel really vulnerable, um, nothing's gonna happen for you. So I just had to I had to I I learned so much how to kind of step into that space. Whereas in rugby, I never really felt that not not to that degree, not to mm. that degree. Um, so yeah, I was shitting my pants multiple times. Um, but I learned to uh. I never got comfortable with it either. I got a bit better and I, I kind of have a lot of mental triggers and I used to do a lot of reading and like meditation and just kind of as a person um, kind of learned a lot. Uh, so short answer is, yeah, very scared a lot, even before training, even before training every day, because you get cut. I, I knew if you miss two kicks back to back, you're literally on the chopping block, which I experienced up in the CFL, um, which we might get into. But uh yeah, the, every day I had to learn just to kind of just, but I told myself, unless I put myself in that environment, I'm not going to get to do anything. So then I'm not going to get to progress. So it's a byproduct of kind of putting myself, what I want to achieve, it, it kind of comes out of the with it. So yeah, that's that's how I, I approach that. Embrace vulnerability was, was, the, was a major thing. You mentioned the CFL there, the Canadian Football League. After your season with the Aviators, you were brought up to Hamilton uh, in February of, yeah, was it 2022? Yeah, I spent five games in the European League living in Poland of all places. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you were you were in Rockland, Poland there for a while. How was that? Was that very different to what you did in America? Yeah, gas. I was playing American football with a bunch of Polish, German, Spanish lads. Um, so I went from being this lad that never played the sport before in America, this pure random fella, to all of a sudden going and playing a few games in Europe. And they saw me as this like big shot, hot shot he's played in America. <laughs> and I was like... Uh, I started playing the game six weeks ago, lads. Uh, <laughs> I didn't broadcast that too much, but that, that was funny because then it was like a different different environment, different crack altogether. Um, but it was perfect because I just finished that that league in America. And I had some good tape, but then the CFL and NFL teams were like, if you can go get more experience, we'd suggest you do. Because in the, in the American league, the furthest field goal I got to kick was 33 yards. Cause it's just the way I didn't get any long shots. Um, so I was like, what am I going to do next? And I remember talking about meditating. I remember sitting outside my garden in Galway um, just being kind of, and just did that. And then I was sitting there writing things down and it's like, what, what's next? Like, is this over? Um, and then I got an email from some fella in Poland saying, do you want to come play in this league? I gave it a YouTube or Google YouTube and I watched some of the games. And I was like, Oh, it actually looks kind of decent. And like, it was, it was professional. It was a few hundred quid a week and a house and food. But yeah, it was it was what I needed, um, and uh, like proper TV footage, which is really important because I needed to show that to the NFL, CFL. Uh, so I went out there. I got to kick. You know, I got to attempt a sixty-three yarder, which I had the distance and like shaved the left upright. But I got to hit fifty-twos. I got to hit forty-sevens. I got to bang loads of punts. So I got training tape or game tape, which then 
got me into the CFL. So that so that was turned out to be un, unreal valuable. But Poland, I, I knew turned out to be an amazing an amazing time there. But I, I I didn't know anything about the country. I I knew nothing about the country. It's a bit, and Germany they they love American football in Germany. Um, you go to games five seven thousand people. I remember the first game we we're playing in Cologne, and uh, people are shouting leader leader, and I was like my surname. I remember being like, oh, gas, who the hell is that going to be? And I remember uh, turning around and then just a bunch of Germans and just started like ripping into me, giving me a load of abuse. And then it dawned on me. I was like, oh, yeah, an American football, our names on the back of the jersey. And because uh, in during the American League, it was in COVID. So you know, there was no one there was no one in the stands. So there's no heckling. Um, yeah. so I, I got used to kicker you're on the sideline for 99 percent of the game. So you're just getting abused for away games for 99 percent of the game. <laughs> um so yeah it was it was a fun experience and it, it gave me what i needed to go up to the cfl which was um which is class yeah i mean the cfl is a different level because that'd be just sort of the, you know the one step down from the nfl so to speak in terms of okay it's a little bit different there's only three downs rather than four downs and that kind of thing was that a very sort of was that the, the most professional setup you got into in american football and did they pay you during training camp and that kind of thing it's not going to make you a millionaire but did you get no. paid a few quid yeah, yeah, yeah. No, CFL was proper. CFL was, I used to watch Hard Knocks. Um, that was my only real knowledge of American football or the Waterboy um, or playing Madden. So that's all I knew about American football, literally. So um, no, CFL was proper. Maybe not half, maybe just under half of the guys that played in the NFL um, or guys were en route to the NFL. Um, you know, it, 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 that was proper. We had, you know, class facility, class stadium, proper professional. And yeah, we're being paid properly. The top guys would be getting, I don't know, 700K or something. So um, in you know, the, the year-long contract, it was only six months. So like, no, that was proper. Um, and that was class because that's what I was like desperately trying to get in to like real football, not to disregard the other leagues, but you know what I mean? It was, it was, it felt real. It felt like what I've been training towards going to training camp um, and getting to experience that. So yeah, that was um, real intense, real, real intense. Cause again, I used the example earlier. Um, so I went into training camp, there's a depth chart and I was the third kicker. So bottom of the depth chart. Because uh, even though I had at this stage had accumulated footage, I was still I had only played nine or ten games, and I was still yeah. competing against professionals or guys that are just come out of D one programs or the NFL. So I was still competing against those lads. So uh, I remember a third in the depth chart, and day two, we actually went through a strike. <laughs> so that for the first like six days, there was a strike. My first time seeing the stadium was outside picketing with the sign. <laughs> it was that was a. Uh, that was that was gas, but when we eventually got up and running, um, once all the CBA was sorted out, um, like we're literally finding out through Twitter and, and journalists what was happening. The we it was it was amazing how little they communicated to the players. Anyway, um, we eventually got training, and the lad on the depth chart ahead of me missed two kicks in training, and then I remember texting him that night. The kickers, were, even though we were fighting for a job, we were still pretty close because we we're a unique kind of subsection of the team. I remember texting him about uh, breakfast the next morning, and he was just like, "Oh, bro, they flew me back to Kansas last night. Like, I'm back, I'm back in Kansas already." And then I was just like, "Go next morning, I go in. There's a depth chart, and I'm at two, and you know he's been caught." And I was like, "Oh shit, okay, like this, it's there's no messing around." So I remember telling myself that moment, "Don't miss two kicks. Do not miss two kicks back to back." Thankfully, I never did because I would have been fired earlier. And the, the, eventually, the guillotine did drop, um, but like. 
I went through training camp and it was class. I statistically I was the highest highest uh, percentage through camp, which was really really like fulfilling for me to achieve to do that. And I got to play in um got to kick a game winner, got to experience that. You know, I kicked a game winner on a Friday night, four seconds to go. And uh, that was my second kind of time I felt that kind of flow moment. Um, I remember just before taking the kick, it was like, this is perfect. You nailed this kick. The job's yours. Um, I remember just going out and banging it and just felt amazing. Stayed, everyone erupts. Boom, game over. I'm like, I remember just thinking like, okay, like I, I can't be released now. Like what more could you ask for? And then literally Monday morning, uh, they, you know, they're doing the last cuts and um they're just the gm just told me hey you uh you did a phenomenal job and i was like yeah i did i was like 93 in training camp died all my stats ready to go because i knew i knew everything's recorded um but i knew at that point i was being cut because i you know you get that dreaded phone call um as they as they do in hard knocks you're just you know you're waiting around on final cut day and uh i remember going in he's just like look you did an amazing job you you, you got asked to kick a game winner and you, and you banged it but uh we're going to go with Seth and Seth, for example, had played for a college called Texas A&M. So he'd played like he kicked a game winner against Alabama in front of like 112,000. He was with the Colts for a little bit. So, and he's class. He went on to set a franchise record as it turns out um, last season. So I, I, I had no qualms about it because I, I, it wasn't that I performed poorly. I, I, I could, I could accept that quite easily. Um, but yeah, it was it was like a, a bloody whirlwind of a, an experience to kind of go from that high. I wouldn't say the lowest of the lows because I, I I always knew I was still I was still this raw Irish guy even after all that. I was still I still played twelve games ever, so I you know I was never established. But uh, yeah, that was a there's a bit of a brief overview of the the Tiger Cats say. Yeah, it's uh, it's extremely tough, but we have to remember. I always say there's less than five hundred basketball players in the NBA, and as you know, like, there's probably around about the same in the CFL or the NFL. You know, like the rosters maybe a little bit bigger, less teams or whatever. So you've actually yeah, been 50, up there. Professional kickers. In the Sorry, world. how many? Around fifty in the world. Like professional. And you, you were so close, and you kicked a game winner. A pre, it was it was a preseason game, wasn't it? Yeah, preseason up against uh, Montreal. Yeah, at home, so it was, it was it was a nice experience. But yeah, it's it's a tiny pool of people. Yeah, it's incredible. Where did you go from there, Ty? Did that sort of scratch the itch for you in terms of trying to play professionally? Did you go right? This is just going to be too tough. It's going to take too long. Or or what was the next step then for you? Um. Yeah, it was. I remember. So at this point, I had <laughs> actually asked about funds and stuff. Literally, they uh, that was like four or five o'clock. And as I said, like cuts have to be done by six o'clock. So it was like four or five. And I was like, Jesus, maybe I'm, so I still didn't fully believe I was going to keep it at this point as the day went on, it was kind of like, mm, maybe I, maybe I am, or maybe they're going to keep me in some capacity. Um, but anyway, say at four or five o'clock, the call came, do that meeting. You um, pack the bags really quickly. And they said, Oh, there's a flight going to Dublin from Toronto in whatever, three hours you're on. And I remember just being like, well, wait a second. You just told me I did it. I performed amazingly to stay ready because the call could come at any moment or else some team's going to pick me up. They wouldn't be surprised if some team picked me up off waivers. You only you release other teams can sign you. So I was like, I'm not getting on that plane. No, I'm not going back to Ireland to, to not get re-signed. So I remember getting like an envelope of cash, literally an envelope of cash for my training camp time and then the obviously the, the reflights and stuff they just put all that this did all that for me so we're like just leaving with this cash in an envelope of like whatever it was canadian money 
and going back to the girl I've seen at the time who's since who's now my girlfriend and just going back and being kind of like what the fuck just happened like what's going like I just just, what what is this um so yeah so then I um talked to a few teams pretty quickly uh CFL teams and because week one was the next week so they just said you're top of our list it's called a ready list um basically your kicker s's up you're getting the call um so that went on for like three or four weeks so i'm just training by myself watching every weekend waiting for a lad to miss and uh that didn't happen uh one guy missed which i thought i was going to go in but the team stood by him fair enough and uh so then at that point i'm like okay i'm like four weeks in now what next? And then in Ireland, there was a game happening in the Aviva Stadium, a college football game comes to Ireland once a year. And I always knew from the moment I started playing American football that had I, my biggest barrier was I didn't, I didn't play in college. I, I, I needed to play in college. Like that would have, I think it definitely would have made things a lot different because um, I would have been able to answer that question. Hey, where'd you play in college? So I would have said, here, here's my college tape. Could never point to that. So um went back to Ireland and I always knew that I, that we the Irish lads w- could potentially get on this pathway, but there's no pathway in Ireland. It doesn't exist. So I said I'd do this little kind of um mini experiment, say when that college football game was happening, I got linked up. I just sent the organizer, I found him on LinkedIn, just sent him a message and say, Here, listen, I think that there's a potential for Irish guys to play college football, get scholarships in America, Gaelic footballers, rugby players, soccer players to become kickers. Uh, you guys are running a big college game in the Aviva, Aviva, but there's no Irish involvement. It's all American. Like, Joe, there's going to be nothing on the day that's Irish. So how about at half time, you get Irish lads out kicking field goals of our competition. And then, you know, the guy was like, ah, that actually like sounded that. So he called me pretty quickly. And then, you know, they said, look, we'll sponsor we'll sponsor flights and stuff for the winner over to the U S and give them tickets to a game. So then I just came up with this idea of our, um, Ireland's kicking King, where I just went back to Ireland with my, uh, in a camper van, got a camper van, drove around Ireland to different locations and uh, just had people come out kicking. And then the, the best of those got to go to the Viva stadium, the morning of the game. And the, you know, it was the top 15 from across Ireland got whittled down to three and the three lads got to go in at halftime during that game and kick field goals and um, the winner, the winner of that got to go over the US. But um, he's he was a 17 year old from Craig's, not far from my home in Galway. And um, I remember after the game, his his family, who I got to know a little bit through the process, because it's over three weeks. They uh, young the younger brother, he's like seven, was just who a lot of cancer, a lot of the difficulties, health issues, and he was like on the men. So he had just flown back on time for the game with the mom, the dad, the other brother. And I remember Andy won. So we had this big crown on it. We, we bought well, this big crown. We bought this two euro crown in the pound store before the game. Um, but we put this crown on him. <clears throat> and I just remember after the game, their family kind of coming together and the little brother and Andy putting the crown on his little brother's head. It was quite emotional. And I was attached, but it was quite emotional to see. And I remember thinking, I was like, wow, if I could like do something that that like can like create like life changing stuff for families and like by utilizing these like this natural kicking stuff that you know they can do amazing things and go to America and like experience college and college football not even professionally just just the the college and the college football and like that kind of unity thing that I saw I was like this feels really bloody purposeful and feel I was like I was kind of fellow was staring me in the face I was like you should try and do this and for example that kid Andy he's trains with me now in Ireland full time and he's going to be going over to the U S next year to play. Um, so 
I started, I've, I've been doing that. I've been, so I retired there and then pretty much I said, you know what, I'm not going to stick with this carousel of waiting. And then your life could just be changed in an instant. You miss a kick and then, or the wind blows a little bit hard one day and you miss a kick and then you're just cut again and you have to start from scratch. And at this stage I was 30 and I was kind of thinking, you know what? I did really well. I got, I got to experience what kind of what I thought it was going to be within the CFL and kicking that game winner. I was like, I, I got, I got to do a lot actually. Like that was really cool, but like maybe it's time to try and do move on and like open the doors for, for where my issues lay, create a solution for, uh, for the next generation say. So yeah, that, that was how it's called leader kicking. So that's how that got up and running and it's been going really strong for the last say four or five months now. Um, do you reckon you'll be able to get a few Irish lads, you know, with, from a Gaelic football or a rugby or a soccer background and get them into decent colleges in America? Because like you say, it's not necessarily that they take one of the 50 pro jobs in the world, but it could be absolutely life changing for a lad to go and kick for Notre Dame or to even for one of the Ivy League schools that you mentioned earlier on, you know? Oh, so we're talking to Vanderbilt right now, for example, with the, a Gaelic footballer. He's 21 from Leash. Six months ago, I never kicked a ball, just played Gaelic football. A good, good, like decent level, played minor for leash and stuff. But uh, like, yeah, we're, we're actively talking to Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt are ranked number 13 in the country uh, academically. And they play in the FBS, which is like the biggest division of college football. And um, they, they, they can play against the big time 100,000 people in the stadium programs, like mega, uh, every resource under the sun given to you. Um, so yeah, like Joe, he, he he's... Hopefully that's going to come through in the next two, three weeks. It's kind of back and forth with um, academic stuff because it's a high level academic college. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm not trying to tell lads you're going to go play pro because you're probably not. You're, you're realistically not going to go play pro. But I'm telling lads that you, you're going to go and get like um, college football for those that know in, in the US is, you know, it's it's gigantic. Nothing in Ireland compares to it in terms of scale. Um, at least, you know, the big programs like Notre Dame you mentioned. Um some ten lads that hey, you can use your Gaelic football, your rugby kicking ability, and turn that into a scholarship that can wear two fifty to three hundred k. You get a you get a degree from phenomenal university, which is going to equip you for life. Your parents are obviously they're like my son gonna get a degree from these colleges, yeah, um, with no overheads. And then the son, they they don't really care as much about the academic side of things like I used to be when I was their age, but like they see like I'm going to get to go in and play big time college football in like these phenomenal stadiums it's it's like i equate it's like being playing the premier league in the uk in terms of the resources that are given to you you know like everything everything is there and now they can actually also be funded now they can also actually get some money but that's not important it's it's the academic and the experience side of things that i'm telling people like it's, it can be truly life-changing and it's very realistic it's very like this guy six months ago did not know gaelic football or american football and now he's talking to vanderbilt and, and, and a few other colleges so yeah I Dublin minor Gaelic footballers come down to me uh, just Sunday, yesterday. Uh, so yeah, no, it, it's getting it's getting really good traction, and it should because we're good at it. Like we're good at kicking the ball, so it's a new avenue now, you know, to to utilize that and in a really cool way. Especially with schools like that as well, like where you mentioned Vanderbilt. There, it's like that's one of the top colleges in America. The network you're going to get out of that. These are the Fortune 500 guys at that. And. Um, <laughs> Can I ask you, Ty, like, it's one thing to have natural talent, which you obviously had in your position in rugby. You obviously have a natural talent to kick the ball. But can you teach people to kick the ball? And if so, what's the secret to being a decent kicker? Because, be Jesus, I've tried all my life and it's never worked for me. Um, so 
lads have to come to me to get a scholarship to go play college football in America. They already have to be kind of like, I can just throw them a ball and a tee and they can probably kick a 50 yarder. Like they need to be able to do that raw with nothing because the reason is we're competing against guys who've been playing high school. Kind of what I experienced in the pro game, a little bit filtered down, but it's still the same idea. So we have to be able to show we're that much better. So I can't take a guy who who can day one kick a 30-yard field goal and make him into a 55-yard kicker. I haven't seen that yet. And I don't think like so I I everyone's welcome, but I try and be realistic with guys that like, hey, if you wanted to do this and go play college football in America, division one, like these are the metrics you need to be hitting pretty much day one. And I I can I can clean up your technique and get your time and get your tempo and maybe add seven to ten yards, maybe ten max. Um, but yeah, you already have to be pretty impressive day one. Like I told you, when I kicked day one, I was kicking 55 yarders with no experience. Like I, I tell lads, I need you, you need you around 50 yards. Um, I can tell pretty quickly if a lad has the raw materials to work with or not. And then, and then it's up to them. Do you want to become a better kicker? I can make you a better kicker, but I'd be realistic and say, I don't think I can get you a scholarship to America because I don't want to waste guys' time. But I, what I'm was happening tonight just before talking to you is, uh, there's a league in Ireland, like a, a, a Irish clubs play. Um, so I'm now taking guys that say, Hey, I can't get you to America, or at least not on a scholarship, unless you, yes, you or your family can afford to. I can might get you in, but you'd have to pay. Um, but if you really love the sport, you love kicking, there's uh, 12 teams in Ireland that, that I can help you and train you, and you can go play for them, and you can go play the sport, and you can experience that and have a new sporting passion to do. So I'm happy that's kind of worked out. I initially didn't see that as an option, but, uh, so the, uh, yeah, but so basically, you have to be very bloody good at the outset to be to have a realistic shot of going to play top level in America. It's a bit ruthless, but it it is it is I guess. Is there a particular body type, a particular height, a particular style or technique that you see is more effective than every everybody else? Like I'm I'm six foot three inches tall, but I can't like I literally couldn't kick a forty five in Gaelic football, never could like you know just can't get the ball off the ground, can't get the accuracy out of hand. I'll hit it you know reasonably decently, but not off the ground you know. So what are you looking for when a kicker stands up in front of you, Tyke? It's um so most that uh, like Gaelic football goalkeepers have been showing up to training um and they can hit it quite well distance, but they can't get elevations because they're kind of driving the ball. Whereas in American mm -hmm. football, you have to get it up over the blockers. So like not necessarily a body type, but I can tell within two or three balls in terms of your, the elevation and the, the rotation, because everything's judged, everything's timed. So, you know, they, so like that's what I'm looking at is like how quickly to get it up. And then within that, then like, is it a clean ball or is it a bit shaky? Like XC, they call it. Um, they're probably the two biggest indicators that jump off the page or jump out at me in terms of that. And then thereafter, there's like different swings. I went through a biggest swing overhaul, which was terrible because in rugby, I kicked a certain way and American coaches hated it. So I had to overhaul my swing, which was, was really difficult, especially when you're 29, 28, 29, trying to develop a new swing. Americans like your foot to go really long and elongated towards the target. Whereas in rugby and Gaelic football, we kick and it kind of gets to between nip and um, knee and hip height and our leg then comes back to ground because we're moving. So we got to get back into motion, right? Whereas in Gaelic football, American football, they don't. So I first look at elevation and like the, traje the trajectory. And then if you have that, then if you have the swing mechanics, 
as they call it, that that I hope that and then that the, in soccer you kind of kick and your plant foot, your ankle kind of collapses as you kind of curl the ball. I don't know if these hand gestures are doing anything for someone in the podcast, but uh, <laughs> the uh, the American coaches are really hyper analytical, so it's uh it's, it's kind of frustrating because I I'd say to a coach, hey, do you know that he just kicked a fifty seven yards high down the middle? Do you really care that he's his ankle kind of he rolled his ankle a little bit because it's that bit that's important, right? Where with the goalpost, not his ankle. But a lot of them were just like, yeah, but this is how we do it, which is, as I mentioned at the outset of the call, they're quite traditional. So that was really frustrating, actually, to deal with that and still am. But uh, you know when you see it pretty quickly is a long-winded answer to that. Um, leader kicking has obviously taken off as you said you get fellas driving down from Dublin or driving up to Dublin because you're you're basing yourself in Dublin now is this something that you would like to do full time and I know this is like you know trying to put a camel through the eye of a needle but do you ever think that we'll see an Irish kicker go further than you did and make it onto the roster of a CFL team or an NFL team and start kicking for real in the regular season in North America definitely Uh, like I'd say five to seven years definitely um, they need to go through college, obviously. But uh, there's two or three guys right now that are kind of floating around pro leagues in America, uh, who are Irish born, but they went they moved to the US and played in high school or college. Um, no, so I'm, but I guess what I'm trying to do is find like find guys in Ireland and train them in Ireland, and then go to college or you know. So like, there's a bit of I guess there's a bit of a difference in that way. But uh, yeah, I'd say in the five to seven years, I I be I think we see a guy definitely going to, like it'd be phenomenal cfl i think that's more likely for obviously that it's 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 the 32 nfl kickers and you have your next nine so i'd be, I'd be quite hopeful of that um short answer yeah we have the ability to do it but keep in mind as well we also we can also punt and we have um we have a lot of punters as well so that that could happen before the field goals before the kicking uh but yeah it, it's just a matter of getting guys into college and once they get this first guy gone um, hopefully out to Vanderbilt, which would be an unbelievable start. I, initially, I was just thinking D two. Initially, I was thinking Anthem to be honest. Like if we can get a guy over to play, just because like it's it's hard. It's hard to send a guy who's never done it, and it's hard to get a coach to take a punt on you. Um, so, but he's so good. This lad's so good that his door, doors are opening up for him. He's a fellow ginger as well, so he's I have a soft spot for him. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so uh, I think that's very realistic. I think it's very realistic and I think it, it will happen. It's just about me. And yes, do I want to do it full time? Um, yeah, like, uh, I truly, truly like it's a perfect, personally, it's a perfect intersection of kind of like, you know, my experience and what I saw in the sport and like my skill set and in the network that I developed around that. So I think I'm, I am well positioned to do this. And it's, it's it's just someone someone needs to connect the dots because like the skills it's it's all there it's just no one's kind of harnessed it so yeah I'm I'm the man to do the, I'm the man to do it and the the talent is out here it's just they need a pathway so I'm working hard to uh to to build it and was it build it and they will come so I'm confident of that. And just one last question, Tiger. I really appreciate you taking the time, and it's been absolutely fascinating to hear this from the inside. What's your relationship to rugby today? You mentioned the good times. You mentioned the not so good times. Do you still watch Connacht play football? Do you still watch the Irish rugby team? Will you watch the World Cup, or or have you just moved on from that now? And American football is the thing for you. Yeah, um, I was literally telling my mates at the weekend that I don't. There was a actually a Connacht game on the bar we're in, and I was like, "Geez, I haven't watched a game in ages." So I don't, 
I'm not tuned in or people often talk to me about rugby and I'm like, I actually don't, I don't know. I, <laughs> the last two weeks I scheduled the three, two of the last three weeks, I scheduled training sessions during the Ireland six nations matches. <laughs> I know after I was like, idiots like that. Well, we couldn't. So I guess that's an indicator of how, um, detached i am i i'd still if i sit down with friends and watch the game fair but like i'm I'm not tuned in at all I, I i i like the game more than i ever not more than i ever have but i don't dislike the game now definitely definitely not but I, i'm not i'm not switched into it like i used to be um which definitely surprised people just when they talk to me about it and i'm just i actually i don't know i don't know what i didn't see the game at the weekend or i still have friends that play but um that we don't, I don't really talk about rugby much. So yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not um, as in tuned with it, but I don't dislike the sport. I've, I've kind of come around to it again. Are you happy with the career you've had in sport? Yeah, and that's that's what made, that's what made it really easy for me to move on. Um, I was kind of like really fortunate to like because there was definitely a process of am I moving on and stuff like that. I remember kind of sitting down and was like, you know what? Imagine telling ten year old Tig or fifteen year old Tig that he would have got to experienced what he experienced and played two sports uh, two two sports professionally and like got to got to do one where you just kicked because i loved kick you won you just kicked and you sat down then like i i uh yeah no th- that made it really easy that made the, the, the transition easier because i truly felt at peace with it um so yeah i'm really happy that i that i kind of got there and, and like mentally there's a lot of peace and uh like ready to move on and and i experienced so much so now like i look forward to helping others do that truly truly like that's kind of the where where my headspace is at and and it's it's going to work and it's going to help i mentioned that kid and his family earlier like seeing shit like that excuse me seeing stuff like that um and knowing that you can do more of that potentially you know i think it's class and if that's that that's the, the next stage in my life so i'm i'm really excited genuinely excited to try and to make that happen well when shane monaghan put the two of us together i knew that yours would be a brilliant story and it has been a brilliant story and it's not over yet and i can't wait to see the next chapters but for now tiger leader thanks so much for talking to me so man thank you very much for having me on there you go lads the magical tiger leader there fascinating character altogether and uh, you can find him on social media his Instagram profile is at Tideleader, T-A-D-H-G-L-E-A-D-E-R. Or you can find him at on at Leader Kicking on Instagram as well. And I highly recommend that you do. Uh, there's some of uh, some great footage there, some great videos and pictures from his time as a, a f- an American footballer and kicking in uh, in Canada and that kind of thing. So it's well worth a look and that's how it's uh, and definitely if you're in any way interested or if you have kids who are interested in kicking and you're based in Ireland, get in touch with them. Or if you're based anywhere else, you're jizz, you never know. If you're good enough, you might come and see you where you are. Um, I will have to leave it at that because, my Christ almighty, the uh, clock is ticking here and it's going absolutely nuts altogether. But I will be back. If you're on the Arrow Man in Stockholm podcast feed, which is where you will have found this Global Gale podcast or not, but you will have been led there, uh, there'll be an Irish and Sweden podcast on Monday morning. That's going to feature a lot of voices and a lot of sounds from the celebrations here in Stockholm. And I'll be back with you again on the Global Gale next week. If you want to support what I do, patreon.com forward slash Arrow Man in Stockholm. But let us leave it at that and get back to the podcast and a crack and enjoying and indeed celebrating our Irishness around the world. My name is Philip O'Connor. Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. And I look forward to talking to you all again very, very soon on the Global Gale Podcast.